0: Tonight, we turn to question three of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And the question is, what do the scriptures principally teach? And That's what we're going to look at tonight. Without bones, what are you? Without bones, you are just a bag of skin. Just a floppy mass of flesh piled up on the floor. How's that for an opening statement? (laughs) Now what on earth am I trying to say? What is my point? My point is that if your body has no structure, then you really don't have anything. If your body doesn't have structure, you have no beauty, you have no strength, you have no ability to move or function for your body to work You need a skeleton structure. The same is true for theology. I believe it was R.C. Sproul who said that everyone is a theologian. Whoever said it, he's right. Everyone is a theologian. Ask anyone and they will have an opinion about God, about man, about the nature of life in this world. But most people have never Been given an adequate framework or structure for understanding any of it. As I reflect on my own experience and look at the broad evangelical landscape, I have found the same problem is far too often the case. Without a theological framework, we have no coherent Christian worldview. We're a smattered collection of various different pieces and parts that we've heard from different people. We simply take a little bit of theology that we like from over here and a little bit of theology that we like from over there. We are like the person's bookshelf that I saw who had John Piper's book, Desiring God, and Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now, right next to each other without seeing any problem whatsoever. If you don't have a coherent theological system, you will become what I call a Christian pluralist. What do I mean by that? Without even knowing it, you will be part mystic, part charismatic, part Calvinist, part Arminian, etc. To use myself as an example, before the age of 21, I was a Calvinian. That's my own created label. I wanted a sovereign God on the one hand, and I also wanted total human free will on the other, even though you can't have both, as I later came to see. And because I had an insufficient theological framework, I did not have the ability to see the own my own logical inconsistencies in my theology. I had a major case of cognitive dissonance. It's where you believe two different things that actually don't work at all together, and yet somehow you're holding them in your mind, cognitive dissonance. And unfortunately, I believe, and I've seen in my time as a pastor and as a Christian, that too many Christians suffer this very same malady. Even your average Christian who says that they are a Calvinist, or that they are even Reformed, is quite likely to suffer from the same affliction. And I think it's because we breathe the air of pop media, pop Christian radio. We, we breathe from so many streams that we become unaware that we're living with all of these desperate different views all together and juggling them in our mind. And so really the average evangelical in the West, from my experience, likes a little bit of reformed theology in their preaching, a little bit of Baptist or individualistic theology in their sacraments, a little bit of charismatic and revivalist theology in their worship, a little bit of Arminian theology in what they say you need to do in order to get people into church, and a little bit of prosperity theology in how they live throughout the week. Now add to that a little mystic theology in how you really hear from God, and a little pragmatism in their philosophy of theology about what is and is not important in the Bible and in the Christian life. And I think you've pretty much nailed the picture of your average Western Christian. Obviously, there's many exceptions to this, but painting in a very broad, uh, with very broad brushstrokes, I think this is really a good picture of your average Christian in the West. Such a person likes to listen, to this online preacher here and that online preacher there. And they have almost no awareness that the two theological systems from which these preachers preach are uh, completely, in many cases, incompatible. They have almost no awareness that where these preachers are coming from are worlds apart and even at times completely incompatible as would be the case with the person who listens both to Joel Osteen and John Piper Without a coherent Christian worldview we will suffer from many problems and I'll give you a few examples First you will lack the ability to discern sound from unsound doctrine You won't have no rule to measure it by Thus you will also be more susceptible to being led astray from by false teaching. I think you will also lack the ability to stand for truth. Or you will lack the ability to discern where things are almost right, but not all the way there. Or that's good, but way out of balance. You're going to be an unbalanced Christian. You won't have that discernment that you need to filter all of the messages. That are coming at you. Second, and somewhat related, you will be overly dependent on spiritual authority figures. You're going to be over dependent on what this person or that person says in order to know what is true. Your beliefs about the Bible and theology will become more shaped by personalities who tell you about the Bible than the Bible itself. You may even find yourself being further confused by authority figures who might be pulling you in completely different directions. And so you live a kind of schizophrenic Christian life. Third, you will most likely be living in a way that is inconsistent with the gospel. Maybe even a way that is incompatible with it. This is something that your peers, and I can tell you from personal experience, your children will notice. They will notice if you have them. It is a sad fact, indeed, that too many children have walked away from the faith because of the hypocrisy of quote-unquote Christians who profess the gospel but who live like the world. Sadly, too many people are ineffective in their spiritual life because they lack a sufficient theological structure. So they are like the bag of flesh lying on the floor without any bones. Indeed, we need to understand that the beauty of the Christian life, the beauty, what makes the Christian life beautiful is the coherent Christian worldview out of which that life operates. It's the beautiful Christian life is the one that lives in a way that Monday to Saturday matches the way you worship on Sunday. For the Lord is not just the Lord of the Lord's day. He is the Lord of every day. So fourth and finally, without a coherent Christian worldview, it will be very difficult to parent your children. It'll be very difficult to parent your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. In fact, without your own coherent Christian worldview, it is utterly impossible to give one to your children. Indeed, you might be training your children more for the world and the devil than for God if you do not have a coherent Christian worldview. Shortly after the Westminster Standards were published, Thomas Manton wrote an epistle to the reader to commend the Westminster Standards. And in that Epistle to the reader, he cites an unnamed source that gives an an, uh, an incisive critique of the parenting of their generation. And as you read that epistle, I'd encourage you to read it all if you haven't. When you read that epistle, he could be speaking to the present day. And on this point of raising children more for the world and the devil than for God all the while saying you're a Christian and that you're raising Christian children. Thomas Manton includes this incisive quote, uh, and he says, they offer their children to God in baptism, and there they promise to teach them the doctrine of the gospel and bring them up in the nurture of the Lord, But but they easily promise and easily break it And educate their children for the world and the flesh, although they have renounced these and dedicated them to God. This covenant breaking with God and betraying the souls of their children to the devil must lie heavy on them here or hereafter. They beget children and keep families merely for the world and the flesh but little consider what a charge is committed to them and what it is to bring up a child for God and govern a family as a sanctified society. Therefore, beloved, by way of this long introduction and giving you these four points on why we need a coherent Christian worldview, if you want to live out of such a worldview... You need to have a sound and consistent theological structure upon which your life is built. Friends, the Bible is not illogical, the Bible is not incoherent or inconsistent. Therefore, we need a theological system that reflects the logic and consistency of the Bible. We need a theological system that is also logical, coherent, and consistent. And we have such a system in the Westminster Standards. And I would commend it to you wholeheartedly for your sake, for your church's sake, and for the life of future generations, and not the least of which for your own children, for our children. So as we unpack question three of the Shorter Catechism, We find such a structure, and it's a structure that's going to lead us to a bigger structure. Here we find the structure for the Christian worldview. What we are going to look at tonight is how question three serves as a mega structure for the entire catechism. Question three divides the catechism into two parts. As we look at these two parts, I'm also going to give you a structural overview of each section of the catechism. My prayer is that by a careful study of the shorter catechism, that you will not only see that it is a faithful and systematic summary of biblical theology, but that you will also thereby receive the beginnings of a much broader and more coherent Christian worldview. I hope that our study of this is just the beginning to a broader and more clear understanding of God, his world, and what he asks of us. This framework is going to give us a structure on which you can hang everything that you learn and on which you can discern everything that you hear. It's going to give you buckets and categories to put things you heard and go, oh, wow, that, is, that relates to this. And that relates to that. And it also helps you hear when something is off. That's what this is going to do. It's going to help you to live better, more faithfully, more clearly. It's going to give you greater discernment when you hear preachers preach, when you hear uh, teachers online or on the TV teach, it's going to give you just a greater comprehension. And I have found retention to retain knowledge. Because once you better understand the subject of what's being talked about, the better you can retain that information and understand it also. And I also believe that it's going to help you to be more intentional and consistent in the way that you think and in the way that you live for the glory of God and for the joy of God's people. So we come to question three, what do the scriptures principally teach? And here we see the scriptures principally teach two things, what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Question three is all about what the Bible principally teaches. The rest of the catechism hangs on this question and on this answer. In fact, throughout the catechism, you're going to see these questions and answers that actually set up the structure for the next section. It's really, just from a literary level, it's pretty cool. You can kind of geek out over it. But they're going to give you little hangers and little categories, and they're going to let you know where we're going next. And that's what they're doing here. They're giving us the broad two parts of the catechism If you actually go to the larger catechism on your own some other time, you'll notice that the larger catechism is explicitly stated in these two points. But in the shorter catechism, it's applied here. All right, so let's look at these two parts. First, what man is to believe concerning God. This section covers questions 4 to 38 of the catechism. So the shorter catechism has 107 questions and answers. And without a structural roadmap, I find that it can be a little bit confusing or overwhelming to kind of know where you are and where you're going. And actually your, your ability to remember and understand and appreciate each section of the catechism actually comes from understanding the, the whole, the map, the map, the pathway of the whole. Questions one to three that we have mostly gone through, we're on the third tonight, we've covered one and two already form an introduction to the catechism which then sets up the two major parts of the catechism question one deals with man's chief end and then questions two and three deal with the doctrine of scripture using systematic theology language we would call this prolegomena or first things that's what questions one to three are they're setting you up they're giving you what you need to know in order to move forward What's man's chief end? And where do we learn about that? It's the scriptures. So that now that that's laid out, they're launching us into the Bible's principal message. Questions 4 to 38 is where your mind might be blown. This, when I first really got this, light bulbs were going off left and right in my brain things that I had, categories I had never been given or seen in this way, all of a sudden were before me. It was like the first time I beheld the Rocky Mountains in all of their glory when I climbed to the top of Long's Peak and I looked out and I saw just row after row after row of snow-capped mountains in front of me to the west. That's what I pray this will do for you. This section unpacks what we are to believe concerning God. And I would wager a guess that while you certainly will find a lot of the things talked about here somewhat familiar, you probably have never thought of them quite like this before. And if you study it carefully, it will change the way you see everything. Even when your wife talks to you about political drama in Iowa. In other words, there is nothing that happens in this universe that does not fit within the theological structure of the Shorter Catechism. There's nothing! Now, that is not to say that it addresses every detail of life or the church. You can look to the Confession and the Larger Catechism for more detailed statements. But if you think theologically, you will see how there is nothing in the universe that is outside of the theological scope of the Shorter Catechism. And that is what I mean when I say that it will change the way you see everything. So I've given you a handout with the structural map of the Catechism. And you see there on the the outline that I've given to you that questions 4 to 38 cover the doctrine of God. They cover the doctrine of God. It covers all that the Bible principally teaches about God. The person and work of all three members members of the Trinity are found here. And here you will find that everything in your life, everything in the universe, flows from the glorious fountainhead of God. Everything flows from God. This doctrine of God that you see in 4 to 38 is divided into two parts. 4 to 6 cover the nature of God. And questions 7 to 38 cover his work, or what the catechism calls his decrees, the decrees of God. If you look carefully at the structure of this section, you will note the powerful truth that everything in the universe flows from God. Everything flows from God. This to me is a theological masterstroke from the pens of the Westminster divines. They show how everything flows from God in the structure and outline of the catechism. Look at it there before you. This section includes the usual systematic theology subjects like the doctrine of God, creation, man, sin, and salvation. But what makes the Westminster theology unique is the manner in which they organize these doctrines. First, as I have already stated, the structure shows that they view all of these theological subjects as subcategories to the doctrine of God. Normally, you're going to have chapter one, doctrine of God, chapter two, doctrine of Scripture, or maybe you'll get Scripture first, then God, and then you go man, and then sin, and then you go Christ, you go on and so forth. But what they show is that all of these things flow underneath as subcategories of the doctrine of God. They're not separate, they all flow out of the fountainhead of deity. I will give you another example of the uniqueness of Westminster theology in this section. Look at the doctrine of providence. When you get what I'm going to show you, you will find comfort in your trials and in your failures like you never have before. You will find comfort, friends. You will also find, I hope, some sober humility in your outlook of your successes and your triumphs. Because all of this flows from God. The doctrine of providence covers questions 11 to 38. And this section shows how everything from the chirping bird to our redemption from the curse to the fall under God, it's all under God's providential care. Creation, providence, redemption. This is all, all of this stuff flows. From the doctrine of providence. Everything that happens in your life, everything that happens in this universe, flows from the providence of God. It's directed by the providence of God. That excludes nothing, there are no exceptions. Take this up a notch. Note how questions 7 to 38 flow out of God's decrees. That means that everything in the universe happens by the decree of God. Now, you are going to need to wrestle with that idea, especially if you're just starting to wrestle with the doctrines of grace and of this idea that God is sovereign over the affairs of men over people over nations you're going to need to wrestle with it read the scripture on it but when you come to see it you will find comfort security and i hope also humility like you never have before but you will there find rest and security and peace both in the trials and the joys of your life here's one more example take a look at the doctrine of the holy spirit And you might say, I don't see a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Where is it? Well, questions four and six deal with the nature of the Spirit as the Spirit is a person in the Godhead. But what is not clear from just looking at an overview, but once you read it for yourself, the catechism you'll see is very clear. Questions 29 to 38 deal with the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a huge section of the catechism. This section is called the application of redemption. Here you will come to see the principal work of the Holy Spirit. Now, occasionally reform theology has been accused of having no doctrine of the spirit. They'll say it's just you're just Christ-centered or you're just word-centered. You have the word, but we have the spirit. But I would argue that there is no more complete and robust articulation of the work of the Holy Spirit in all of the Christian heritage than in the Reformed tradition, and so clearly spelled out in the Westminster Standards. The Shorter Catechism, as well as the broader Western theology, uh, excuse me, the The broader Westminster theology reflected in the standards shows how the Holy Spirit is behind every part of your salvation. Every part of your salvation has the Holy Spirit directly behind it. There is no articulation as broad and detailed and robust as the Reformed tradition And you can try to challenge me on that if you'd like to. But from my own broad reading, there's nothing close to it. The parts of salvation that are too often labeled as the part that man plays in salvation are shown in the catechism to be truly and biblically the work of the Holy Spirit. If you want to see the Spirit work in power in your life, come to see how He works in you, as he applies redemption to you. If you want to know the work of the Spirit, come to see how he applies God's glorious redemption to you, to the church. So from the doctrine of God to the doctrine of the application of redemption, this is what the shorter catechism shows to be the Bible's principal teaching concerning God. And when you come to really grasp these categories, it's going to change how you see everything in your life. Let's look at the second broad section of the Catechism, what duty God requires of man. And this covers questions 39 to 107. The Bible is God's revelation to man about God. We just saw that. But the Bible is also God's revelation to man about man. We are made by God and God has made us for a purpose. God did not make us to just float about as free agents doing whatever we want. There is a duty to which we are called. This duty was given before the fall of Adam. We are redeemed from the curse that came from our failure to do that duty, that is for sure. Nevertheless, we we still have a duty to God as the redeemed. And that's what this section is all about. The Catechism divides this section again into two parts. Questions 39 to 84 deal with the topic of the moral law. Questions 85 to 107 deal with the means of grace. And if I might just interject here with a comment, I would say that this section is probably the most neglected section in the broad Christian church. The role of the law as well as a broad and complete understanding of the means of grace this section for most people is the most kind of like whoa i've never thought about this like this before it's a really profound section of the catechism and it will really help to give focus to your life when you come to understand it in fact i would say that this is another master stroke of the westminster divines their articulation and application of the moral law. Now they're not pulling this out of thin air. They're getting it from the Bible. You just see loads of proof texts attached to this section. They're showing how it can what can it connects to what scripture is actually teaching. And what they show is that the moral law is man's eternal duty. The moral law wasn't just something that was required for a time and then has fallen away. They show it's man's eternal duty to God, even though we need to be redeemed from our failure to do that duty. Nevertheless, it is man's eternal duty. Paul tells us in Romans 2.15 that the law of God is written on every heart. Even the Gentiles who did not have the law of Moses... That means that all the way back to Adam, the moral law was there. It was on his heart. It was in his conscience. The Catechism is going to go on to show how the Ten Commandments are the summary form of the moral law. The moral law existed before the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments are God's summary of the moral, uh, moral law. It's God's summary of the law of that moral law that preexisted the right the formal writing of the 10 commandments. And we do not have time to go into it at this point, but if you scan the proof texts, the biblical references under each commandment in the catechism, you will see how the catechism shows both from the Old Testament and the New Testament how the 10 commandments summarize the entire moral law. Everything that was taught through Moses and everything that was taught by Christ and his apostles can be summarized and fall under a section of the Ten Commandments. It is a masterstroke of the divines to articulate it and show it so clearly this way. The Ten Commandments summarize the entire moral law for God's people before and after the cross. It wasn't just something for God's Old Testament people. It's something for God's New Testament people too. But now in the catechism comes the gospel. In both sections of the catechism, it is crystal clear that man is a hopeless sinner. It is crystal clear that we have utterly and daily failed to do our duty. That there is no way that we can fulfill the law of God in such a way that God will be pleased with us. The catechism is crystal clear on that. Every person stands condemned by the law to the wrath of God. We are condemned by the law to suffer God's wrath because we have failed miserably. At keeping it. But after that, in both of these major sections of the Catechism, section one and two, what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man, each section clearly shows that Christ is our way out, Christ is our Redeemer. Capital R. If you want to know the duty that God requires of you as a sinner, hopelessly condemned, you're going to want to study the section on the means of grace, which is the second part of the second section here. The second part of what duty God requires of man. This section concludes the catechism and covers questions 85 to 107. And here we see that faith and repentance are the means of escaping God's wrath and curse. We see that at the start of this subsection in questions 85 to 87. Then we see yet another unique contribution or masterstroke from the Westminster Divines. The Catechism shows from the Bible how the outward and ordinary means of grace that God uses to redeem us are the word, the sacraments, and prayer. Indeed, you can summarize really the Protestant tradition of the the doctrine of the church in respect to what the church is to do with these three things. If you want to recognize a visible church, It'll be where the word is faithfully preached, where the sacraments are faithfully practiced. That would also include discipline when you bind somebody from the sacraments, church discipline, as well as the church that gathers to pray. In all of this, it is God alone who saves. We call these the means of grace but these are God's means, and it is God alone who saves us. In this way, the shorter catechism really is historic Protestant theology in summary form. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed by Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Amen and amen. This is grace alone theology articulated in catechism form. So the Bible shows us that God uses means like the word, like the sacraments and prayer to bring us to faith, to nourish us and to sanctify his people and indeed to persevere us in the faith to the end, till Christ returns So as we move forward in our study, I pray that you are here to learn how to see and how to savor God's glory. And I do pray that you are here to learn how to live more faithfully in light of that. I pray that your study of this catechism will be a whole, will open a whole new door of Christian living in which you can see and savor the glory of God, in which you can share that glory of God with others, in which you can live more faithfully and more intentionally your life as a Christian to God's glory, and that you will find your greatest joy in these things. I pray that, to use the words of Paul, that by this study you will learn how to walk Worthy of the gospel to which you have been called. Worthy of the gospel to which you have received. What I personally cherish about the Shorter Catechism is that it teaches us from the Bible that God is big. God's really big. We are small in the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ is at the heart of it all. In the shorter catechism, we find a faithful and systematic summary of biblical theology. Study the catechism, my friends, and you will receive the beginnings of a much broader and more coherent and consistent Christian worldview. I pray that it will bring you more beauty in your life, that it will bring more beauty to your family, to your church, and to your witness, In the world. Now, finally, to the degree that the shorter catechism is biblically faithful, that's always the question, to the degree, because these are human fallible writings, to the degree that the shorter catechism is biblically faithful, and I believe that it is, may it lead us by example to read the Bible with a greater zeal to see God's glory and grace in everything. That's my prayer. It will lead you to see, with greater zeal, to see his splendor, his beauty, and everything from the waves in the fjord outside the window to the bird flying in the breeze to the problem you're facing at work to the hardship in your family. I pray that you would more zealously see God in all of that. And there you would find your comfort and joy. That thereby, in developing a much more coherent, consistent worldview, that you would find health, you would find safety, security, and rest for your souls. And power for the mission. The Westminster Standards are so good at leading us in that Example, And I wish we had time to unpack the lives uh, of the different men that were contributed to the writing of it. It was a unique time in the Protestant Reformation. But let me just simply say, if you want to read a little bit about these guys, read about the great ejection when 2,000 evangelical gospel preachers were kicked out of their pulpits in England. The very men who wrote these words in, I think it was less than 20 years' time, sixteen was it 16 years? Yeah, we looked it up this week. In 16 years after these things were written and published, they were kicked out of their pulpits for this very doctrine. It's like what we're studying in Ezra. No sooner do God's people get out with preaching the word, obeying the word, than Satan rises up. Let us follow these men in holding fast our confession of faith. Let's follow these men in helping and letting them show us more clearly the doctrines of God and the doctrines of grace and the doctrines of the Christian life. So in the spirit of Hebrews 13, let us follow these Westminster men who lead us still today by this theological heritage, who show us how to know that God is big and how to live more faithfully for him, let's follow them in the spirit of Hebrews 13. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you, the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith.